All right, so we're in Romans 8, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin with reading to you uh, an illustration that was given by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, if you're not familiar with him, he was a medical doctor who became a pastor in England uh, back in, uh, right towards the end. Yeah, pretty much in the middle, I guess. You, well, see, what year is that? Yeah, right, right about World War II. And... Uh, preached and pastored until the 70s when he retired. He continued to preach uh, until the 80s. Um, terrific, terrific pastor and, and preacher. And he said this, No child likes to be washed, but when he is going on an outing to church, dinner with family, or what have you, his mother washes him. The kid grumbles. He does not want her to clean out his ears. He does not want his neck to be washed. He objects to it all, but mom insists upon it because they are going out. The honor of the family is involved here. The kid doesn't like it, but it is done to him for his good and for his enjoyment of the outing. God deals with us in the same manner. We need to be washed and cleansed. God's purpose is to make us absolutely perfect, with spot or wrinkle, without spot or wrinkle, faultless and blameless, holy and fit for his holy presence. In order for such a work to be accomplished, it is not sufficient that the gospel be preached to us. We do not listen as we should. We are too busy. We forget. But God has other methods. He may put us on a sickbed. He gives us disappointment. There is loss. There is a setback. There is a troubled spouse who manifests their troubles and interjects them into our lives. It is all part of his preparation of us for the great glory that lies ahead. In James 1, James says, My brother, encounter all joy when you fall into various trials. And so the questions are these. Are the corners being knocked off your character? Are you being cleansed? Are you being hurt in the cleansing process? Do you know for certain that God is handling you and dealing with you? Do you think you are ready as, as you are now for heaven? And so there the idea that he's getting at, which Romans 1 is talking about, because Romans 1 talks about our sanctification, it's talked about suffering. The idea with all of that is that God is always involved in our lives as Christians, and even though there are many things that are going on, what we need to remember is that God is always at work in us to change us, uh, to make us different, to help us to overcome our sin, uh, to make us like his son, Jesus Christ. Because we're not there. Uh, we're not even that close. We should be, the longer we're with the Lord, the closer we should be. Um, but that's what the Lord is doing in our lives. And that really is good news for us because we know then that even though God has many reasons I think, why things happen in our lives. We know that one of the reasons will always be to make us more like his son, to cause us to become more patient, more giving, more gracious, more dependent, whatever it is that we need. And God knows what we need. Um, and he will bring that about through the various circumstances and people in our lives. Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 4. And I'll begin reading in verse 12. And Peter writes this. He says, Beloved, do not be amazed and bewildered at the fiery ordeal which is taking place to test your quality as though something strange or unusual and alien to you uh, were befalling you. But insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, rejoice so that when his glory, which is full of radiance and splendor, is revealed, you may also rejoice with triumph. If you are censured and suffer abuse because you bear the name of Christ, then blessed are you. Consider yourself to be happy and fortunate, one to be envied, with life joy and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, 
regardless of your outward condition. Why? Because the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of God, is resting upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. So again, the idea there that Peter makes it hard to get away from is that he explains really what our attitude should be in the midst of suffering because he explains what God is doing. And again, the idea is is that God is never just at a distance watching what's going on in our lives. He is involved in every facet. So every person we meet, uh, everything that goes on is going to be used by God. So that meant then for me on, uh, when was it? Well, I guess it was uh, yesterday. So yesterday afternoon, I'm driving to an appointment, and my radiator blows up in my truck. It's just not a good thing, because you can't go anywhere if you don't have a radiator. That was very inconvenient. I'm already impatient the way it is, and now this happens. And I don't have much time to get things done, and this takes place. It was good, because I was able to put water in my radiator and be able to, and I could get my truck to my friend's shop. And then my wife, thank goodness, was willing to come pick me up as I was walking to my next destination. But even those things, even though I may not be aware of it right at that moment, and I may not even be, I may not even think much about it, but all those things that happen in our lives, God is going to use them to form our character and, and to forge in us the person of Christ, as well as cause us to maybe meet people we, at, at that moment that we more, normally wouldn't meet, or to meet someone again, uh, to continue to reestablish a relationship that will open some doors later for us to talk to that individual about Christ. But there's always something going on, and so uh, we, it's important that we have a very positive attitude towards life. Not that we're living in denial of what's happening, but because we know that God is doing things. So then when we start to complain, um, which is one of those things that always bothers me when, when anybody complains, I guess chronically, as a Christian, because I keep thinking, I don't always say this to the person, because I may not always know them well enough, uh, and so I, you know, I have to wait, but I keep thinking that as a Christian, why would I ever complain if I know that God is working in all things? Why would I do that? Because what I'm saying by my complaint is, I'm saying God doesn't know what he's doing. I'm saying that God's making a mistake. I might even be saying that, I might even be accusing God of sin. I'm not saying God is sinning, but my attitude and the way I handle it is betraying that because I'm not dealing with life the way Peter just described, where he says, happy are you. You should be filled with life's joy uh, when these things are going on. And even though he is talking, he might be talking primarily about the kind of suffering one goes through persecution, the Bible makes it clear that all of our suffering is really in the hand of God. Uh, there's nothing, no suffering we're going to endure that doesn't pass through his hands first. And we just we need to remember that, uh, drill that into our head um, so that we can respond really correctly. Uh, and then by responding correctly, then you're more, you're in a better position to hear what God is saying or to receive what God is saying. Yes? Um, what about disappointment then? I mean, do you think it's wrong to be disappointed? I do think that, that there is room for initial disappointment. It's when it lingers. That's when the problem is. Um, I mean, obviously, there may be some disappointment that could be, just be wrong from the get-go. Uh, but I don't see where 
any kind of attitude that way is necessarily wrong it, uh, because we're human beings and we're going to have all kinds of responses to what's going on. So if someone is never disappointed, we also might begin to think that they're never dealing with reality, <laughs> right? Because there are things that clearly disappoint us. You know, I mean, our children disappoint us at times. We don't hate them, but we're disappointed. We expect more, whatever. Um, but then it's, I, I, so I guess maybe the bigger thing is in how do we handle that disappointment? Uh, so disappointment will be normal. Um, we want to make sure we don't turn it into a, a complaint, um, especially complaining kind of a thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, I do think that maybe we are disappointed less often, or maybe we handle disappointment better the longer that we're believers. You know, because we mature and uh, we, we won't, there'll be less of that knee-jerk reaction on our part, because that's what can get us in trouble. So... Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians. Uh, this would be from the Amplified. The other one was as well. Um, but I think this would give us a, a good view of what we're supposed to have when it comes to living life. And because we want to make sure that as Christians, we're always living in reality. So life is good, but we're not pretending that everything in life is good. Bad things happen. And, and so we don't want to pretend that doesn't happen. Uh, but the way we approach is important. So this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in 16. Therefore, we do not become discouraged. So I'll stop there just for a moment. Because with the way that Paul says that is he's making a statement of fact. Because we are Christians, because we know what's true about Christ and the relationship we have with him, we do not become discouraged. So it's like you don't allow yourself to become discouraged. Now, again, we're human beings. So as we struggle as Christians, there'll be times that we're moving in that direction. But we can correct that course, uh, usually as we read the Bible, as we pray, maybe as we talk with other believers, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Some of us would get this sooner than others. That's just normal. Uh, but again, the idea is that we, uh, that's the stance of the believer. We don't become discouraged when all of life is falling. So that would then, you know, again, you think of the, some of the extreme situations. So A, so the believer who's in Afghanistan right now, all right, and they know that there's a chance that they're going to die sometime in the next 30 days. All right, there's many people that are in that position. They don't become discouraged. That's hard. That's hard to hear that. Except my experience with a lot of people like that, they don't. They don't become discouraged, which is amazing. It's usually spoiled Americans that become discouraged. But then when you read the Amplified, which the Amplified, the purpose of the Amplified is sometimes to amplify what's being said. That's why it's called the Amplified. And it can be helpful. Um, sometimes it can be a little misleading, so we have to be careful with it. But, but it does a pretty good job with this. So, so let me read it again. So therefore, we do not become discouraged. That is, we don't become utterly spiritless. We don't become exhausted. And we don't become worried out through fear. So you can tell the idea there is that uh, Eileen actually used a really good word. So he's not saying that we don't become disappointed. Because that would be okay. That disappointment usually is a momentary thing. Discouragement is disappointment over a long period of time. We become discouraged. Or, as it says here, we, you might become maybe emotionally or spiritually exhausted. Okay, so a believer, sh that should not happen to a believer. Um, if we're involved in church, if we are involved in reading the word, we're involved in prayer, the spirit of God will renew our spirit as, as on a regular basis. Now, 
That doesn't mean there won't be what, what some people will call dry times in your spiritual life where it seems that God isn't always there. And there, that, that's kind of a testing from the Lord, I think. Uh, and so that is, that, you know, we're not, that, that's not all that common, but it does happen. But again, there's this idea that we have a very, very strong mindset um, as Christians. We understand reality. We live in reality. We face reality. We're not afraid of reality. And so as a result, we don't become this person with no spirit. Uh, we're able to endure. All right, so it goes on. Uh, so therefore, we, we do not become discouraged. Though our outer man is progressively decaying, and wasting away, yet our inner self is being progressively renewed day after day. So there is, I don't want to call it the secret, one of the secrets of the Christian life, because it's revealed, so it's not a secret, but the, it's not really well known. But there's this clear uh, example given to us where we know that our bodies are decaying. No matter how well you take care of yourself, we're getting older. Things fall apart. Uh, we're more susceptible to disease. All those kinds of things happen to us. That's normal. And that can become discouraging for some people. Uh, maybe it could, become, it could become discouraging for all of us unless we have the right attitude uh, because it's happened to all of us. But while he says that the outer man is decaying and wasting away, yet, on the other hand, the inner man, that's not the case. Who we are on the inside, the real you and I, so to speak, is actually continuing to get stronger. We remain energetic. We remain spiritually energetic, uh, it would be a good way to put it. Um, and uh, that's because of the work of God. Verse 17, for our light, momentary affliction. Now remember that the guy who writes this is the guy who was left for dead several times. Okay, so this is not just some guy who has lived in a nice free country and has never really suffered much of anything. This is a guy who's been beaten, he's been stoned, um, he's been shipwrecked. He's been left for dead. People have tried to put him to death. Uh, people have sworn an oath that they wouldn't eat or drink till they killed him. Uh, I mean, just on and on, uh, to say the least. And so he uses this language that our affliction is light and momentary. Uh, so there's no room really for self-pity. This is not where we're going to try to compare who suffers the most, um, because it's never about that, and it should never be about that. Uh, so again, our light momentary affliction, which is this slight distress of the passing hour, is ever more and more abundantly preparing and producing and achieving for us an everlasting weight of glory, beyond all measure, excessively surpassing all comparisons and all calculations, a vast and transcendent glory and blessedness never to cease. So part of what, part of the purpose, part of the, part, a part of the purpose of, of the kind of things we go through is what awaits us that God's going to give us is so glorious it cannot be really described with human language. However, as we suffer, then it makes the comparison to what we're going to receive that much greater. All right, so, example, if you're born in this country, which most of us are, we become very accustomed to the amount of freedom that we have. And even though we may appreciate our freedom, it's different for the one who comes from certain countries where there's very little freedom. They move here and they cannot believe the things that you have access to and what you're allowed to do. It's just, it's for them, it's it, that, that comparison. So we both experience the same freedom, but for them, 
their response and their attitude is almost seems like over the top because of what they suffered. So the idea here is, is that uh, part of the reason that this is going on is so that we don't lose that comparison of how great it's going to be, how, how much sin has really destroyed everything. Um, again, remember that, that uh, in the eternal order, when we live on the new, in the new heaven and on the new earth, what we consider to be beautiful, whether, the, whether, it's, the hev- whether it's the mountains or, you know, I'm from Hawaii and it's ex- exquisitely beautiful there, remember that all the beauty that we've seen are things that have been marred by sin. Sin's ruined all of it. And yet we still see this beauty that at times is exquisite. So imagine how unbelievable it's going to be when we live on a planet that is not affected by sin. It just You can't. There's no way to imagine it. Because the only thing we can imagine are things that have already been ruined by sin. And there's things that are just, that blow our mind as far as the kinds of beauty. Uh, and that's part of the idea. And this is for our benefit because God loves us. So then, um, we, we want to make sure we have the same attitude as the psalmist does in Psalm 119, verse 71, which reads, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So back to reality, one of the, one of the reasons why we are afflicted is so that we can learn of God. Um, I know some of you are familiar with my testimony. My testimony is not unique in this way. Uh, but, I, but I, you know, when I... A lot of my suffering has been self-inflicted. You know, even when I got my knee ruined playing football, it was self-inflicted, you know, because I wasn't, I wasn't living in immorality, but I wasn't following the Lord like I should, um, which was clear to me. And so when my knee was obliterated, um, and so I went through all the suffering that was going to bring about in my life, that was the, it was great for me. I mean, it, it was one of the greatest things in my life. I didn't think it then, but when I look back, it was, it was, a, it was a life-changing period of time uh, because the thing that I had built my life around, all of it was just completely ripped away, and it, and it needed to be because uh, I had not sought what the Lord really wanted with my life. I didn't know what the Lord wanted with my life. I didn't really ask Him. Um, and so... Uh, the idea then is when we go through times of difficulty, even if it's not your sin that's necessarily brought it about, affliction is still going to be a great way for God to get our attention and to get us to think about things. And, and we want to make sure we don't allow those moments to pass us by. Uh, it's, just, it's very important. So that's why, uh, again, what Paul says in, in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. So the word consider in the Greek language is logozomai, which refers to a which refers to numerical calculations. So when this word is used figuratively, uh, it means that you have reached a settled conclusion by careful study and reasoning. So what Paul is saying then is as he looks at his life and looks at his suffering, he has thought it over carefully and he's weighed the evidence and he's come to his conclusion. So, uh, so an example would be what we're facing now as people living in this period of time. So let's say someone gets COVID, all right? We don't want anyone to get COVID, but people are getting COVID and more people will get COVID. And when, when you get COVID, because of the way things go, 
even if you even if you don't get real sick, uh, you're supposed to be quarantined. You can't go anywhere. It limits what you can do. That type of thing. So we want to make sure that we. So it's important for the Christian then, at least with part of their time, is to think about their life. It's a great time to think about your life. What's been going on? Where are you? And where are you going? How are you going to spend the rest of your life? You may not make a career-changing decision, but you may change your attitudes towards whatever's going on in your life or whatever it happens to be. The idea is that God wants us to think and, and to uh, uh, reason in a biblical way. So reasoning in a biblical way is, is I'm thinking about what God wants from me. I'm thinking about what God desires us to become. And then I look at how I'm living. And does that match up? Is what I'm doing matching up with what I know God wants me to do? And so there may be some things I need to get rid of. There may be some things I have to change. There may be some other things I have to do more of, whatever it happens to be. Um, uh, and that, that's hard to do. It's hard to do because we're not used to thinking, and it's hard to do because we're not always used to actually changing. <laughs> Change sometimes is forced on us. Uh, but this is, this is how Paul is living, and this is what he's telling us to do. So again, no matter what we've gone through, whatever we're presently going through, whatever, whatever it is we're going to go through, the sum total is not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. So again, that's why there's no room for self-pity, because the glory that awaits us is coming. All right? there's, it's guaranteed. Uh, there's, there's nothing that's going to stop it from happening. So I'm, I'm going to inherit that. So it's kind of like comparing a thimble of water with the ocean. Uh, we cannot compare our sufferings with the coming glory. Uh, our belief in what the scripture says should change our lives as, as Christians. That's why it's so important for us to read the Bible, study the Bible, uh, just to become, the idea is just to become more familiar with what the Bible says. And, and that's just over a long period of time. It doesn't have to be, if it's, if it's instantaneous, then that's great. But the idea is that we just become more and more familiar with what it says. Um, and because it will have a greater and greater effect on us. And that's the idea. Um, so again, we may, ha- we, we, we may need to have our eyes, you know, basically lifted from the dirt to look to heaven. Um, but the, again, the idea is that there's just no comparison with the glory that we're going to experience and the sufferings we may have now. Again, Paul calls these sufferings in 2 Corinthians light affliction. And he compares it to the eternal weight of glory. Uh, again, verses 17 and 18 of 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So there in verse 18, we're told where it is that we should focus on. Is don't look at your circumstances and don't look at what's happening. All right? Doesn't mean that you're in denial. Okay? So let's say that you've been diagnosed with cancer. So we're not going to pretend, and you should not pretend you don't have cancer. That would be foolish to do that. However, as we go through the treatments and meet with the doctors and all of that, that is not our focus of our life. It doesn't make up the bulk of your life. The bulk of your life is made up by looking at the things that are unseen, which are the spiritual things of God. Um, 
some of you knew Charles Bowden. He was one of those individuals who was able to do that. Uh, he was dying of cancer, uh, but his concern was always, he wasn't worried about it, but he was concerned in the sense that he thought about it a great deal, and that is to live, to live every moment for the Lord. So he then, so on days when he had, would have lots of pain, because you know certain cancers can bring some pain uh, with it, depending on what, what's going on. So the days he would experience lots of pain, if he found himself being short with his wife, he generally felt guilty for that because he knew he had no excuse. And he, he would confess that to the Lord and he would confess that to his wife. Uh, he confessed it to me. Um, and we would sit and talk. And this wasn't a man who was pretending to be spiritual. When you have cancer like that, I don't know if you have energy to pretend, to pretend anything. <laughs> you know, it just takes up too much, too much energy because of what you're fighting. But he was genuinely concerned about that. Uh, he wanted to make sure that he finished well and that he kept his eyes on doing what God wanted. And God wanted him to, even though he was limited, he couldn't really go very many places, he would sneak out every night. <laughs> there was a couple of stories about him sneaking out of the house when he shouldn't have been. <laughs> but anyway, um, he, uh, but, but he wanted to, um, to live well, even though his life was extremely limited toward the end. Um, he always wanted to be about the joy of the Lord. And it wasn't pretending. There were times when you could tell he was hurting. So he wouldn't lie and say, I'm not hurting. He would say that the pain was great. But he would also say, yeah, but I, just, I still have this sense of joy in my life, which was just tremendous. Uh, made it even that much at times more difficult just to be with him because you just, you really, it was just hard to imagine him going through that and just his approach to everything. That's kind of the idea um, that Paul is getting at here and the attitude that we are to carry with us. In Matthew 19, it reads this way. It says, Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So God, Jesus has been talking about them making sacrifices and whatnot. And so Peter, uh, in a very kind of a arrogant way, said, Well, look at us. We've left it all. And we've followed you. So what, basically, what do we get? <laughs> and so Jesus says that in, the, in that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So, in the words of Jesus, for those who suffer in this way, though, uh, you know, again, we think of those who are in land where there's a great deal of persecution, where people lose their homes, where uh, people's families have left them, uh, or where individuals have had to run away because their lives are in danger. Uh, Jesus says, uh, you, will, you will receive a hundredfold. Uh, so that is not giving money to some TV evangelist and you'll get blessed a hundredfold. That's not what that's talking about. All right. This is talking about those who've truly suffered for the Lord. God is very much aware of what is taking place, and that person will be rewarded uh, for that. And so that's why I'm convinced, uh, and I'm looking forward to it, that when, when I'm with the Lord, I know if, if there is, I don't know if there's a line, but if there is a line where people are going to receive their rewards, I know I'm going to be towards the end. And I'm fine with that. 
and I and these people who've suffered this way, they they need to be blessed tremendously. And I want to see that happen. I want that to happen for them. Uh, and you know, we could say, well, if there's anything left over for me, well, I know there will be because God, who is giving, is giving out of infinity. So it's, it's not like there's only a certain amount. And when he gives it all, all the way, that's it. Sorry, because it never runs out. But still, uh, it's just a, a tremendous thing. And uh, for those who are in those kinds of situations, what great comfort that is to know that God is very much aware of all, all of the suffering that's going on um, and that they're not forgotten. Um, you know, that, that psychological difficulty that people have today in our country, you know, that where they want to have, they don't have a sense of identity. And people are looking to belong to something. Uh, and of course, it leads to all kinds of weird ideas. However, um, these individuals in these countries who normally don't have problems like that, um, they, it, the, the, the idea with identity is to know that you won't be forgotten. You know, we want to belong because we don't want to be forgotten. It's, it's not really a selfish thing. Uh, but for the Christian, we can kind of almost take it for granted that that would never happen. You know, because the Lord would never forget us. So then for these who are suffering, who may be in places where, I mean, imagine being in a, you know, if you're in, in, a, in a country where you're in a cell and you never see anyone except for two or three people for, for let's say, a decade, and the only two or three people you see are those who are the ones who are torturing you. I mean, talk about being isolated and feeling very insignificant. And for those individuals to know that they're not forgotten, that God will not forget them, and that's just, it's amazing. And it gives them strength and it gives them joy. Uh, and they're able, they, they're able to endure to the very end. And, and we know that because we hear stories of individuals who are the ones doing the torturing, where some of them have become Christians because they see these individuals who, not for 10 weeks and not for 10 months, but for 10 years, have never faltered, have never gotten angry have never cursed them. I mean, that's, that's just incredible. And as a result of that, they saw the reality, the power of God, and, you know, it broke them, and they became uh, believers. And some of them, uh, because they became believers, would have immediately been imprisoned um, because of, of that. But they were, they were good with that. So it's really, really quite amazing. And what we need to remember as believers here even though we're not facing that, it is the same God who supplies us with the same power, the same grace, and the strength, and, and the same strength to face whatever we're facing. He, he, he will do that for us. Uh, when, and he will do that for you when you need it. So if we're going to go through great suffering uh, two weeks from tomorrow, you're not going to get the strength of God tomorrow. You're going to get it two weeks from tomorrow when you need it. All right, that's when God's going to give it to us. Uh, it won't be late. From our point of view, it's just in the nick of time. But God's never in a hurry. He's never in a rush. But when you need it, it'll be there. And you'll be aware of this incredible spiritual power that has, in a sense, overwhelmed you. Uh, but you won't have to wonder where it came from, because you'll know. Uh, because God's not going to uh, ever leave us alone. So it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. So again, when Jesus was talking here in Matthew to Peter, he mentioned... Uh, uh, that in the regeneration. So we should ask the question, when he said in the regeneration, what is that? What is the regeneration? Well, uh, 
In the Greek language, it's a word that's, that refers, I believe, to the millennial kingdom. Uh, it's only used one other place in the New Testament, and that's in Titus 3.5. And there the word refers to our new birth in Christ. In Matthew 19.28, Jesus is talking about the rebirth of the earth. Uh, we see that uh, in Colossians as well, where the Bible talks about that the earth groans with us, awaiting for the redemption of the sons of God. Uh, and the idea is that when our bodies are redeemed, the earth is redeemed along with it. Because remember, the earth is under the curse of sin, uh, as well as we are under the curse of sin. And so there is redemption for basically the universe through Christ. And so there's this rebirth, uh, which happens. It's a very natural thing. So just as our new birth is incomplete until we enter heaven, uh, the earth awaits its rebirth in the millennial kingdom. And so we wait for the new heaven and the earth uh, waits... Uh, we wait for the new heaven, the earth waits for the new earth, uh, and I believe that this passage clearly asserts that the twelve apostles are destined to do what? Which is to sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. How that happens, what it looks like, I don't know. But that's what it says, um, and I believe that. Um, so it seems to me that Israel will be restored to its twelve tribe division, uh, even though all those genealogical records were destroyed, or most of them were destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, you know, it's not like God forgot who belongs to what tribe. So that'll be figured out pretty quickly. Um, so there'll be a, a national restoration and everything that Jesus says that will take place will take place. So when you read Luke 21, beginning in 24, it says, And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time that the Gentiles are fulfilled. Uh, and so basically we're in the times of the Gentiles now. And when that time is fulfilled, whenever that time comes, um, uh, what we do know is that this situation we're in now is temporary because there's a new heaven and new earth that's coming. And so again, in light of that, you know, as we also saw in 1 Corinthians 15, in light of the resurrection, uh, in light of the regeneration that's coming, uh, we then are better equipped to be able to handle the disappointments and the sufferings and the discouragement that comes our way in this world. Um, you know, I don't know specifically the future of what's going to happen with to us and our country because of all this stuff with COVID. And when I, when I say that, I, pri I primarily mean the government's reaction to it and the restrictions that we're, that we're going through. And there's a bunch of things going on. I, not in, I'm not into conspiracy theories, but there's a lot of other things going on in politics where there are those who want to take advantage of the situation. But what I do know is that The norm for most governments, whenever they go through various kinds of changes, need to find a group or groups of people to identify, to make out to be the bad guy. That's going to be the Christians. In the end, that's what it's going to be. It started a long time ago, whenever you would listen to the news. Um, you know, they talk about the radical Islamist. And they use the term for the radical Christians. The radical Christians used to be those who you would find living in camps like, you know, David Koresh or whatever. But now it's not quite that anymore. If, if you've just paid attention, if you like Trump, you're a radical Christian. All right. And it's going to continue to change to where if you don't like the vaccine, you're a radical Christian. You know, you're a radical right winger. It's always that word radical or in other words will always be used. Whether it's true or not is of no consequence. It's the group that's going to be identified. Uh, and usually it's Christians, at least from a secular point of view, because Christians tend to be free-thinking. The government doesn't like that. You know, they want everyone to be thinking the same. 
and Christians are the ones who ask questions. Remember, we're the ones who say that, our, that we always insist that our religion is true. We insist that people look at other religions and ask questions and dig into history and dig into philosophy and that Christianity is not afraid of that. So we challenge people to do that. Well, we challenge people to do that with everything in life. And the world doesn't like that. They don't like absolutes. They don't like moral absolutes. Um, they don't like it. Um, they, they don't want anyone telling them what to do, especially God, um, or anyone who wants to say that we should live by any kind of an absolute moral standard. And so we're, we're the ones. We're the ones that are going to get nailed for that. Uh, and what it's going to look like, the specifics, I don't know, and it doesn't really matter. It's just that the pressure will come in many different ways. And we should not be discouraged when it happens. It's going to, so I'm not trying to be a, you know, doom and gloom, because I, we can be happy with all of that. I don't want it to happen, and I know my grandkids are going to suffer a whole lot more than I ever have. I know that. But I'm going to do all I can to prepare them. And that's really simple. They need to, they need to know Christ. They grow as Christians. And if they, if they do that, because why? The Bible is sufficient, and the Spirit of God is sufficient. Right? It's, I don't have to be here to protect them. I want to be, but I know there's a day coming, I'm going to die. And they'll be on their own. And I can trust God with that. In fact, God is more trustworthy than I am when it comes to that. Uh, so we don't, have to be, we don't have to become negative, even though it's disappointing. I keep using Eileen's word. <laughs> disappointing that maybe our country is going in the direction it's going yet. I don't like it, but it's, it's going to happen. Nothing's going to turn that around. You know, you look at, look at prophecy, it's just not going to happen. All right? Because you, nothing is going to happen in that way apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so there will be many revivals here and there, but the Bible makes it clear that the world is going to go in the wrong direction, full speed, period. And we will never get the job done because when you read Revelation, God actually sends an angel to preach the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And I think the reason why he does that is because we don't quite get that done. Yes, Mr. Ron. Only a miracle of God can save this country. Yes, and God has pretty much told us he's not going to do that. But individuals can still come to Christ, and that's what we are focused on, is getting the gospel out. Uh, because uh, um, that's the only salvation there is. And thank goodness for that, um, to say the least. Anyway, I got plenty of time. Hold on. Okay. I knew there was another quote I wanted to read to you. This is from uh, John MacArthur. He says, As followers of Christ, our suffering comes from men, whereas our glory comes from God. Our suffering is earthly, whereas our glory is heavenly. Our suffering is short, whereas our glory is forever. Our suffering is trivial, whereas our glory is limitless. Our suffering is in our mortal and corrupted bodies, whereas our glory will be our perfect and imperishable bodies. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool stuff. So again, sorry, verse 19 uh, from uh, Corinthians, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, so the earnest expectation, or maybe your translation says uh, anxious longing, uh, the idea there is there's a stretching forth of the, of the head 
as an indication of expectation. Like when you, you know, if you're, if you're waiting for something to come, like if people are standing at a, on a sidewalk waiting for a, a, the parade to come by and you stick your neck out and you're trying to look down the street because you're expecting, you know, anyone but to see the, at least the first star of the parade. That's kind of the idea with this, uh, with this phrase, the earnest expectation, is you're stretching your neck out trying to get a picture of, of what's going on because you don't want to miss it and you want to see it from the very beginning. So again, the idea here is that creation is personified and creation is holding its head erect and its attention is turned away from everything else and riveted on just one place. Uh, and that is the um, uh, coming of, of Christ and the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. Again, for the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly because of him who subjected in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of the corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So Leon Morris says this, Because of sin, the creation was made to operate under a law, which specifies a universal process of decay and death. This law of Morpholysis is recognized by science as a basic principle pervading the whole universe. It is also called the law of increasing entropy, meaning turning inward, or the second law of thermodynamics. Every system in the physical and biological worlds has a tendency to turn inward and feed on itself to maintain its structure and activity, but this simply causes it to run down, disintegrate, and die, and this somehow becomes open to outside sources of energy, information, food, etc. Even if it does remain an open system, this internal tendency continues to act in opposition to the incoming energy. Since even the latter will eventually be exhausted, the whole creation then is in bondage to this principle of futility or vanity. But since this law has been imposed by God, he also can remove it. And so there is still hope. And so again, he, uh, that wasn't actually Leon Morris, that was Henry Morris. He was a scientist. Uh, and he talks about the natural decaying of things and how the creation works and the idea of there being hope for creation. So it says then in Zechariah chapter 14, it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be a light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name is one. And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to uh, Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place, from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate, and the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So there's a lot of hope written in the Old Testament, a lot of hope that, uh, that they were unaware of that was rooted in the idea of the coming of Christ and the dealing of sin on the cross. And so again, with all of this focus in Romans 8, which talks about the struggle against sin and the suffering that's going on, uh, we want to make sure that we took a look at the hope that we have in Christ and the coming future that we have with Christ so we understand the backdrop of what it is that, that's, supposed, that's going to energize us and encourage us to have this willingness to face these difficulties with the proper uh, kind of um, uh, attitude uh, and emotional fortitude 
that will do us well and bring glory to God. So William Newell says this, Into the liberty of the glory of the children of God, as Paul has shown, and we've already, that, uh, that, as Paul shows, we already have liberty in Christ, the liberty of grace, the liberty of the glory of the children of God awaits Christ's second coming. How blessed it is to know that into that glorious liberty, creation which has shared the bondage of corruption will be brought along with us. And so uh, with that, um, I trust that as we continue to uh, look at what's going on around us in the world, that we will be encouraged to continue to uh, uh, pursue Christ and not allow ourselves to enter into a time of a spiritual stupor, uh, because that can happen really easy with lockdowns and all the rest. It's easy to become spiritually lazy because all of life slows down and there's not a whole lot of stuff to do in a sense. And whatever there is to do gets boring and man, stuff can happen. So I do want to end the same way I began with, with an illustration from Martin Lloyd-Jones. This will be the last thing I read to you. Um, but his stuff is only great, I think. And he says this. He says, I wonder whether the phenomenon of the spring supplies us with a part answer. Nature every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has come out of the earth and the darkness of all that is so true of the winter. In the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be going through some kind of birth pangs year by year. But unfortunately, it does not succeed, for spring leads only to summer, whereas summer leads to autumn and autumn to winter. Poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity of the principle of death and decay and disintegration that is in it and it cannot do so. It fails every time. It still goes on trying as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds. So it goes on groaning and travailing in pain together until now. It has been doing so for a very long time, but nature still repeats the effort annually. But it will be set free one day from this corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So I guess what we're looking for is the eternal spring. <laughs> when things are made new and they remain that way. How awesome that would be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and love. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged, that as we think about the glory that awaits us, as we think about, Father, the example of Paul, the example of many believers that have, come, that have, that have gone before us, we ask, Lord, you help us to take the time when life slows down for us, or maybe perhaps just to make the time, to look at our life and to think about who you are and all that you've done, to think about history, the history of the world, the history of our country, the history of our own families, our own history, how we have lived, how we're living now, and how we should live. Father, we ask you to help us to think about ourselves in terms of the Bible and what it says. Help us, Father, to have that sense of expectation pray, Lord, that we'll have a great longing for the joy that is ours, not in the future, but the joy that is ours now. And Father, we would desire to be of use to you, to be of real use to others. Help us, Father, to break out of maybe the rut that we've been in for a long time. Help us, Father, to approach each day with a renewed joy and a renewed energy. Help us to recognize, Lord, that as we also are part of this process, uh, as the seasons change, that we'll recognize those changes in the seasons for what they really are, as indicators that things are not the way they're supposed to be, but one day they will be changed, 
and that change that's coming will be permanent and that we'll be a part of that and how glorious that's going to be. We pray, Lord, that that would then cause us to have a proper view of whatever suffering we're going through now. That, Lord, that it will at least successfully minimize in our mind our suffering. Not, Lord, that it's unimportant, because we know that when we suffer and others suffer, it is important. But, Lord, that it doesn't become all-important. That it doesn't become central to our life. That it is, as Paul has said, light affliction. And that we should get our minds and thoughts back on you, and really they come in glory that's coming our way, that we'll be a part of. So we pray, Lord, our hearts to be encouraged and that we'll be re-energized by your Spirit and that, Father, we'll be able to truly live each day to the fullest until you see fit to call us home or perhaps you return before that time comes. We look forward, Father, to both. We do thank you and ask you to keep us safe as we go home. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.